Well, it is good to have uh, with our Custer with us and his wife Grace again, and appreciated the messages today. Looking forward to what the Lord has for us tonight. So, brother, you come and preach to us. Such a pleasure to be with you folks. And I was just thinking about Hebrews 10, 14 as they were singing, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And you know, it's it's such a blessing. I mean, it's a great blessing to know that you're saved, but but who can know that they're saved if unless they also believe in eternal security? You'd never really know. I mean, if if if, if salvation, either the acquisition of it or the maintaining of it is performance based how could you ever know if you've done enough and so people just keep on trying and keep on working at it hoping it'll be enough and you can never know for sure what what joy it is to know for sure that you're forgiven and that you're a child of God and heaven bound I don't understand how people how people can say they understand the gospel but they don't believe in 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 the eternal security of the believer it's almost as though they don't understand the gospel at all. If they imagine that you've got to work to keep it. And, and Galatians 3 is very clear about that. But what a blessing. Thank you for that special. That's a great song. I have never heard that song before. But that's a great, it's a great number, a great truth. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Amen. What a blessing. Well, I hope you had a good afternoon. And we stepped out the door of the... Mission's house over here, and we remembered we were in North Carolina. <laughs> but, but my wife told me that she was, she was assured yesterday by some of the ladies that in the summertime, folks here do what we do in the wintertime. You just kind of hustle between house and car or between building to building, so you don't have to be out too long. <laughs> I was, I, I'm a friend of, uh, we have a friend um, who, he and his family are now in Minnesota planting a church just north of the Twin Cities. His name is Gary Johnson, and he was for a number of years down on the Maha- in the Mojave Desert uh, in Laughlin, in, across the river from Laughlin, Bullhead City, Arizona, Laughlin, Nevada, Bullhead City, Arizona, and he said uh, he grew up in Minnesota, so he was thrilled to be able to move to the desert where he could get rid of his snow shovel and his uh, and his, even his, uh, his, his, his lawnmower because he had a rock garden because they can't keep grass green out in the desert like that. But he said things, he said in some ways it's the same because when it's in the, in the peak of the summer, you just stay inside. You don't go out and you don't. You don't linger out there because it's dangerously hot. And he said, in, in one sense, it's just like Minnesota, except, except the opposite. So, uh, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota, we live on the Minnesota side of the river, but, but we claim, I guess we claim North Dakota by reason of the fact that that's where our church is located. Uh, we were on the Minnesota, the church was on the Minnesota side for many years until the flood, the flood of, uh, 97, is that what year that was? It's been 23 years ago now. When the Red River uh, swelled beyond its banks, we had 10 feet of snow that winter, and, and when it melted, it melted all at once, and it inundated the area. And so we finally relocated. We got a new building built on the west side and a, a ways away from the river so that wouldn't happen again. And I was talking to a congregation about the flood one day, and, and I heard later the little kid 
uh, punched his mother, elbowed his mother, and said, wow, Pastor Custer is really old. <laughs> he was around for the flood. <laughs> we, we thought it was just Noah and his three sons that survived, but... <laughs> But when they talk about the flood, they're, they're not talking about Noah's flood up north. <laughs> but the Lord's been gracious to us. That was, a, that was a difficult chapter in our life and ministry, and we've had a few of those. And you know what? Life is, life is challenging. I noticed that, that little uh, plaque on the wall of the, in, the, in the missions house over there that says, and I'll, I won't quote it exactly because I, I always twist, change words around in my mind, but it says something like, you know, if, if God got you here, God can get you out. And what a blessing that is. You know, we, our, our circumstance is never beyond His knowledge and beyond His control, and, his, and our problem is never beyond His ability to clear us of that. And he has a great plan and purpose in the lives of his children. What a blessing to know that your life is not just dictated by randomness and whatever happens, happens, you know, fatalism or whatever. What a blessing to know that, to know Christ and know that you have a Heavenly Father who's looking out for you and is dictating the affairs of life uh, for your good. Amen. Romans 8.28, for your good, to make you in the image of Christ. And, and it's a blessing to know the Lord. I appreciate the music. I appreciate the specials. appreciate the church and your stand and your kindness, your hospitality. And it's just a joy to be here. And I'm glad my wife can be with me this time. Let's pray and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our time together in the Word of God this evening. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to see the responsibility that we have Father, in, in regard to our testimony and, and a Christian home. Father, would you bless our, uh, our reading of the scriptures this evening and help us as we consider these important truths. And Father, may we be more keenly aware of what we can do and what we ought to be doing for the cause of Christ to bring honor and glory to our Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh, open your Bible with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're not going to read our text yet, but we'll get there in just a couple of minutes, that you can be prepared when the time comes, if we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I've been grieved over the years to realize that there can be, you know, Christian people uh, comprising a family or a home and it not be truly a Christian home. Just because Christian people live in that house doesn't mean that's a Christian home. And there's a whole lot to that, actually, I think that the Bible establishes for us that, that we should understand. Some people are, are just mystified. Oh, you know, we, we, we didn't have the kind of opportunities that our children had growing, have had growing up. And we turned out all right. And so now, you know, our children are growing up in this home where they've come to maturity and they should surely at least do as well as we have. And that's not necessarily the case as a, as, as a second or possibly third generation Christian. Uh, I can tell you this, 
that in my experience, in my observation, it's far more difficult, it's far more challenging to raise children for the Lord who've grown up in a Christian home than if you were already a, if you were already an adult in your in your 20s or something when you got saved and and you got a and, and started a family that way it's far more difficult for children to to embrace truth and follow the path of righteousness and and embrace the faith for themselves if they grow up in a Christian family than it is if they don't because they are you know, in one sense, they're inoculated to the truth, and it's got to be—it's got to be pretty strong, and it's got to be very consistent in their life, in their in what they observe in their family, in order for them to really see it as being real. And I've challenged a lot of parents this way over the years. That, you know, and it's 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 critically important on every in every application, but it's extremely important for parents especially, for dads to demonstrate. You know, this is real. This is real in my life. I believe this with all of my being, and I've invested myself completely in the faith and in the truth of God's Word and in Christian living, and and that's very compelling to children when they see dad living that way. That's very compelling even to adult children. And they'll be influenced by that. There are a lot of challenges in our culture to a Christian home. And I want us to talk about a Christian home in a contrary culture. Because the culture definitely is contrary to a Christian family and a Christian home. And I understand that there aren't very many young children here of families in the congregation. But you've got a good number of single folks here. And, you know, maybe, maybe a good number of grandparents here. And everybody needs this truth. I see this all the time. We have seven grandchildren now and an eighth one on the way. And I'm sure more that are still in the barn, you know, still in the, in the, in the uh, uh, what do they call that? In the warming, in the warming oven that, <laughs> that are still yet to emerge over the years. And we have a great influence in the lives of our grandchildren. And parents should never lose sight of the fact, oh, we've raised our kids. You know what? You have a great responsibility to grandchildren as well. And one of the neat things I've heard said many times, oh, you know, and this is kind of cliched, if I'd, if I'd known grandkids were going to be so fun, we would have had them first, you know. Um, but one thing that I found to be more than just a truism is that when you have the grandkids over, it's so nice to be able to send them home, you know, <laughs> because it's a challenge. They're a challenge. Kids are a challenge. And I've discovered, I've discovered why God gives children to young parents. We don't have the energy that we once had, and so... And so it's a good thing that young parents have children. Although, although, young parents should be very diligent and young singles should be very diligent. I, you know, we have a family camp every year uh, as a ministry of our church. 
we have services Monday through Friday out at our church Bible camp, which is about 16 acres of, of native uh, wooded area, and we, some of it's been cleared. We've built some buildings out there so we can feed people when they come. We've put in some underground electrical wiring so we can house uh, uh, RVs, and, and we have cabin areas where people can stay if they don't have an RV. But, but um, people, you know, we have a lot of singles. We encourage the singles to come and to take notes. Because even though you may not have a particular use and application for the principles that you're hearing, learning right now, you probably will. And so it's good to learn those things while you have the opportunity and not waste opportunities to, to be instructed in the things of the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 3... We're going to read verses 10 to 13 as our text verses. And I like the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, instructions for a wife and instructions for a husband. But we're going to cut right to verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? And the Bible teaches us that we have a great responsibility. We need to be very careful to be followers of that which is good. And God's face, the Bible says, is against them that do evil. And that's the kind of culture that we live in today. And it's so important that we maintain the the biblical elements of a Christian home, even in a contrary culture. And there's a whole lot going on in our world today that will resist uh, Christian principles being, and biblical principles being put to use in the home. And there's a whole lot today that will threaten our Christian families. And so we need to be determined about such things. And it's too, it's too common, it's too common to see children grow up in a, you know, in a quote, and I use air quotes here, Christian home. And then as soon as they're old enough to make decisions for themselves, they're gone. They go their own way. That's very disturbing. And parents are devastated when that sort of thing happens. And why does it happen? I think there are some very good reasons why. Sometimes people just took too much for granted. And I've heard this said so many times. Oh, we had our kids in a Christian school. We took them to Sunday school. We were faithful in church. And, and that should have, you know, why didn't that make a difference in their life? Well, it probably made a difference in their life, but it didn't make enough of a difference in their life. And some of the elements that we're going to consider in the next few minutes, I think, helped answer the question. All of the uh, resistance that we face in our Christian lives today, re, uh, resistance to our testimony, resistance to the formation of a, of a godly home, we should be aware of and we should resist those things and we should desire to design our family on purpose 
consistently. We talked about consistency this morning in terms of leadership in order to be able to see a, a godly result. Uh, flip the page to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. The Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And, and the things that we see around us ought need to be resisted. We need to fight against them and not allow them into our home. It just grieves me, and we'll talk about this as we go. I am not one of those hobby horse type preachers. I try to be balanced in my, in my preaching. And so, you know, you've probably heard of, of preachers who sometimes get on one particular thing and maybe it's their sugar stick and they just always, always, always hammer on that. And I, I mention it once in a while, but not all that often about, about, you know, entertainment forms, videos, Netflix, TV in the home. And, and a lot of parents are inclined to use even Christian videos, you know, as an entertainment form for their children, almost like a, an electronic babysitter. And, and they, those uh, entertainment forms may be harmless in and of themselves, but they're establishing an appetite in the heart of the child and you know what? There are only just so many <laughs> good, decent videos that you can watch. But if you have a strong appetite for that sort of thing, uh, it won't be long before the standard gets lower and lower and lower. I remember when my wife and I were first married, and this was, this was many years ago. We've just celebrated this past month our 46th wedding anniversary. And I thank the Lord for a godly wife. We talked about this, and she has, uh, she is a lot more, uh, and has over the years been a lot more uh, determined uh, slash stubborn about things than I have been, and I appreciate her determination. We talked about it early on, and agreed that we did not want a TV in our home, and lo and behold, we got married, and somebody gave us a TV. And we had it for about one year, and we said, this is not helping us. This is not a positive influence in our life, in our marriage, in our relationship. You know, you know, family night is TV night, right? Movie night, that's family night. Yeah, you really do a lot of interacting when you're all, sitting, you're all glued to a screen watching a movie, aren't you? Right. And we realized that it was detrimental to our relationship. I'm going to talk on, so I'm going to preach on the art of communication one of the nights this week. I don't know which night it'll be, but, but I developed a message not long ago uh, with this conference in mind about the art of communication. How important is communication and what is it? And how it strengthens or its lack weakens a marriage relationship. But, but we discovered that that was not contributing to the soundness of our home. And what kind of an atmosphere do we want to bring children into? When I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, I tell young couples, I say, you know what? From the very start, you're forming a, a Christian marriage. From the very start, you ought to decide what kind of atmosphere you want 
to your home to emanate, what kind of atmosphere you want to create in your home, and bring your children into that atmosphere when you start having children. And if you want a, a, an atmosphere that's riddled by, that's, that's affected by the world, well, they have the world there. But if you don't, don't have it there. Create that environment before you ever start bringing children into that home. And that's, I think, I think it's powerful, a powerful principle. That's good. I think it's good advice. But how, how does the world, how does the culture resist our, our family and, and a challenge a Christian home? We're talking about a Christian home in a contrary culture. Let's talk about how the fact there's too much illusion and there's too much idleness and there's too much information and there's too much inconsistency in our world and it affects homes too often. The first thing I want us to consider is the fact that there's too much Illusion. We might all also call this image. Our culture is based on imaginary ideas that have been promoted and that have proven themselves false and untenable in the past. And you know how this works relative to, you know, the, the republic that we, that we uh, live in, the United States of America, and the millennials, it seems, and we're hearing that a majority of the millennials think that socialism is a better form of government than, than uh, you know, our own form of government, than a representative form of government and, and a, 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 you know, basically a free economy and capitalism. Socialism is better. Well, what is that? That's somebody buying into some imaginary idea that's proved itself to be untrue and untenable in the past. But we don't want to look at the past. Instead, we're changing, we're wiping out, we're obliterating the past so we don't have to think about it. And you've all heard the statement that, that says, if we don't learn from the past, if we don't learn from history, we are destined to repeat it. History will repeat itself. And so that's one general application to this issue of, of illusion. There's too much that's not realistic. We don't want to be realistic about the past. We don't want it. In our culture today, people don't want to consider, they don't want to consider the, the setbacks of the, of the so-called sexual revolution. How many of you were alive and aware of things when that happened? I remember very well in high school, Seeing the cover of, of, uh, um, was it Life magazine? And that was one of the main periodicals, uh, back then, the regular monthly magazines. And, and it had a picture of a man who was dressed in a white, what we would call spandex today, but it was a white outfit that was, he was wearing slacks, he was wearing a sweater, and he was white, and he was standing back to back with a woman who had a short haircut and she was dressed exactly the same way and they were talking about unisex fashions. And that led to this and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And now people, you know, now people don't even understand the distinction between genders, it seems. But in the midst of all that, 
you know, we've had what, what was called the sexual revolution, and people today still don't want to consider all the negatives, all the setbacks from that course of action. They don't want to consider the consistent failures of socialism and communism. They don't want to discuss the folly of Darwinian evolution and the fact that people who don't, who don't believe they have a purpose in life, people who don't understand that they're here for a reason, grow up hopeless. They're hopeless. Why is life, why are we even here? What is life worth living if there's no purpose in life? One of the greatest things that we do for our children, one of the greatest things that we, one of the greatest truths we can embrace for ourselves is that, you know, and I, I, I believe that we're a saved crowd here tonight. I have no reason to think otherwise. As a, as a child of God, you know what? God has, I have a Heavenly Father, and He has a purpose for my life. And if things don't please me at the present moment, I just need to trust the Lord and keep my eyes on the Lord because God has a great purpose for me. And His purpose is not ultimately to make me unhappy, although God is more concerned about our holiness than He is about our happiness. His purpose is to fulfill His plans for our life and His plans will be good. They'll be good. And all things work together for good to them that love God. The challenge to the child of God is to hang in there and keep on trusting that God is who He says He is. And God will accomplish His purposes. And not yield to the to the, the, the media, not yield to the illusion that, hey, you can do things yourself, you can run your own life, and it'll be, it'll be great. And by the way, we don't know anybody like that who runs their own life, and it's always great. The world doesn't want to admit the fear and the chaos and the death that have resulted from excluding God from the government schools and the cultural disarray that has occurred because of, of excluding God from the, from the, you know, the, from the public places. It's just a mess. It's all an illusion. And Satan will never acknowledge that his own plans don't work. He'll continue to deceive. He'll continue to mislead. mislead. It's his goal to defeat God. And, and therefore, the illusion that we're supposed to see is that the world's philosophies really work. And they don't work. None of them work. Look at Colossians chapter 2 with me. I think you're probably familiar with this verse of Scripture. Colossians chapter 2. It's a passage, verses 6 through 8. The Bible says in verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And there's a whole lot in this passage of Scripture that speaks of the world's philosophies and God's and God's way really works and will, will truly bring fulfillment and joy. And sometimes, 
it's not what we wanted. What happens and the current developments are not what we wanted. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I always imagined. We could, I could tell you many personal experiences of the Lord putting me and my wife someplace we didn't want to be. And us experiencing things in the loss of a child, for example. We didn't want to go there. We didn't want to do that. And there have been times when it felt like the Lord, and I told my wife this years ago, I said, it just feels like the Lord has, has set us up. You know, put us in a position and then sort of sort of pull the rug out from under us. And and yet where do you go, you know? Jesus asked Peter, Will ye also go away? In John six, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We have no choice. If we're wise, we have no choice but to just keep on following Christ, even when we don't understand, even when we don't get it, even when things don't seem like they're the way they ought to be. We just keep on trusting the Lord. He's in control. Where do you go if not to Him? Where do you go? Well, too often people choose their own way and they're buying into an illusion. God says man's wisdom is foolishness. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 that God says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God or that is worshipped. Cast down those imaginations. And that word imaginations is the word logismos and it means reasonings and computations uh, and, 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 and what it seems to me, this seems to me this is a good idea. God says, cast down those imaginations if they're contrary to what the Word of God teaches and they're contrary to biblical principle. Cast those imaginations down. Anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is not your friend. It's an illusion. It's going to bring only heartache and more Desolation. Man's ideas are not on the right track. Don't, don't trust the philosophies of this world. They're not accurate. You know, children should have the freedom to choose for themselves. Well, maybe at age 18. Maybe. But not before then. If they're leaving the home, if a young man is going off to the military well, then maybe he has the freedom to make his own choices and maybe a dad will release him from his responsibility to submit to his parents, but not until then. I, I was recently approached by a very burdened father who's a very godly man and I think a very aware father who said, would you please pray for us and our son? And when he was explaining all that was going on with his son, I asked a few questions and, and he volunteered some of the information, but ultimately said, 
that for the last several months, his son had been working long, 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 long hours at a local, uh, you know, I guess you might call it a big box store, or one of the main, one of the main um, chain type grocery and department stores. And I thought, you know what? The devil got in there. The devil got in there. And deceived and caught the heart and the mind of that, of that boy. Because of that long exposure to... And you know, this is one of the issues we've had with the, with the public school system over the years. That we commit our children to, to being filled up with the world's philosophies for 8 or 10 hours a day. And we have access to them for 2 or 3 hours a day. And where is their heart going to go? no big mystery there. I'm just saying, you know, even for teenage children, they're still formative. And we need to be careful about what we allow the world, what part we allow the world to have in their life. They're still formative. They can still be influenced. And hopefully when they reach early adulthood, they'll be able to make wise choices and decisions. They'll be set enough in their, on their own to be able to give them some liberty like that, but they've got to be protected. Far too many young people in Christian homes are enamored with the world and worldly styles and fads and fashions. Why is that? Well, it's the illusion. It's the illusion of attractiveness. This is a good thing. This is attractive. And sometimes parents promote it. The illusion of attractiveness. What kind of, what kind of standards do you want to see lived out in the lives of your children? We'd better be aware of the illusions that are around us and not allow our family to be drawn into those things. Satan hopes to capture the mind's of the family members by alluring them with worldly philosophies and attractions. And we should be very careful not to allow our family to fall into that trap. Too many illusions. There's too much idleness. Too much idleness that sometimes fills up the hours of a Christian home. We live in a crazy entertainment age Nearly everything is about entertainment and leisure, and it's spoiling many people's effectiveness for Christ. And I don't have any, I don't have any problem with genuine leisure, because, I mean, you, even, even God said, you need to rest on the seventh day. Even God said that. There's a place for leisure, but leisure should not should not be the main item. And entertainment forms should not take precedence over character, over responsibilities, over work and demands and scheduling. And, and, and you know, too much of this is working against, our, against us wanting to have a Christian family. I don't know where they ever came up with the idea that you know, come the end of May or into June sometime, kids and P 
people who are employed in a public school system should have 12 weeks off. Who, who in the work world gets that? You work for nine months and then you get three months off. Wouldn't that be nice? And I've seen this happen many times with, with young people. It's like they imagine, okay, I've got my summer off. It's, it's a play time. It's leisure time. It's fun time. I can sleep till noon every day and just be lazy. Is that what life is supposed to be about? You know, one quarter of our year, we just give way to leisure. Well, I guess if children are not working in school during those days, they ought to be working at something else. Maybe it's a different kind of work, not, not no work at all. I grew up in a day when when we didn't have a riding mower, we didn't even have a motorized push mower. We had the old, the old, you know, rotating kind with the blades that went around like this. And if we, when we needed, which was every week, we needed to trim the grass around the fence, we did it with those scissor-like grass clipper trimmers, you know? And we lived in country where it was very hot and dry, and we had to water the elm trees so they wouldn't die. It was so dry. And we watered the grass every day, and it often decided it wanted to give way to, you know, kinds of growth that, that we didn't prefer in our yard. How many of you know what goat head is? It's a, it's a creeping type of a weed that has these little stickers, and they're completely covered. It's like there are a dozen or so thorns on each one. And you can't go barefoot in a yard that has goat head because you'll have the bottoms of your feet covered with that stuff. And and one summer my dad said, okay kids, we had three sons, three boys of us in our family. He said, boys, I want you to spend the summer, get the goat head out of the yard. So we spent hours out in the sizzling sun course we'd be playing ball in the street if we weren't working digging goat heads out of the yard and getting those weeds under control and and we didn't walk three miles to school it was only two miles and it wasn't uphill both ways (laughs) but the point is that and we it wasn't through six feet of snow you know in the winter time, the point is that it's not bad for kids to work, and it's a good thing for for them not to be idle. There's too much idleness in our world, and I think people today need to learn to be good, willing workers. A child, especially, typically doesn't need more chances to have fun. We don't need to create playtime opportunities for them. Even our teenage children, we don't need to create times for them to have fun. We need to challenge them to be focused and be good workers. There's too much idleness in our culture today. We don't naturally come to the conclusion. We don't naturally come to the conclusion, and this is for, for all of us, We don't naturally come to the conclusion that living for the future is better 
than living for the moment. It naturally comes to us that, oh, living for the moment is way better. If there's one philosophy that characterizes the Christian life above all others, I would say it's that one. Okay, am I living for the future? Or am I living for immediate gratification? The thing that will make me feel good right now. And you apply that in the area of, of entertainment. You apply that in the area of good character. You apply that in the area of morality or however you want to apply it. Biblical discipleship. You know what? It's far better for me to live with the future in mind. I'm making an investment for eternity, for the future. Spending money, you know. It's far better to live for the future than to live with immediate gratification in mind, to live for the moment. And that satisfies that itch at the moment, but it brings nothing but grief and heartache later on. What is it that accounts for all the debt in our nation? Not just young adults, not just young married people or college students. I talked to someone uh, who happened to be a single young person, a relatively young person, who was pursuing a career who said, Pastor, what am I going to do? I have credit card, I mean, I have, a, I have student loan debt. My parents instructed me that the best thing I could do while I was trying to get through college was to max out on my student loans every time I could because it's cheap money. But the kicker is it's got to be paid back. And I said, how much student loan debt do you have? And she said, $160,000 in student loans. And at that point, she had degrees. She had a career path that she said, I can't even do that. I won't even pursue that now. And now she is on a different career path and probably racking up more credit card debt or student loan debt, I should say. I've known people, I've known college graduates who say, yeah, I'm busy paying off my credit cards. Oh, what do you owe? Thousands. And what'd you use the credit card for while you were in college? Pizza? Living for the moment, just gratifying oneself for right now, instead of saying, okay, let's bite the bullet now so we can enjoy blessings in the future. I'm kind of a stickler on this. As I said, when I'm counseling a young couple about, in regard to, their, to an upcoming marriage, I always want to know, what's your, what's your debt picture? And sometimes I've told a young couple, you need to get out of debt before you consider yourself ready to get married. And I'm glad to say that there are some young men that I've counseled in that regard, who already own a house. They're buying a house. They don't have any credit card debt. They've sworn off credit cards. They've gotten rid of that stuff. And they have their vehicle paid for. And they've saved money. And on and on and on. And, and I, th- I say, praise the Lord. They have gotten this in their head that they're going to live for the future instead of for immediate gratification. And that's the world's philosophy and it's challenging and destroying a lot of 
Christian homes today. It has to do with idleness because idleness promotes this idea that you just want to feel good right now. We have a natural desire to play instead of work. And the culture encourages this kind of philosophy. Living for the moment instead of living with the future in mind. There's another issue here besides too much idleness and too much illusion and it's too much information. We live in what's been called the information age and I was reading with interest here a while back a man named Buckminster Fuller created the knowledge doubling curve as he called it. And he did some research about how quickly knowledge is increasing. And he noted that until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. And you know how that worked. Uh, for They say for 5,000 years, no real progress happened concerning transportation. You know, they, somebody, somebody uh, discovered or invented the wheel. Somebody invented the wheel. And then they had wagons and carriages and things like this. But there was no more real progress relative to transportation for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, things just exploded. But he said until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. And today, things, he says, are not as simple as different types of uh, as different types of knowledge have a different rate of growth but he said for example nanotechnology knowledge is doubling every 2 years clinical knowledge is doubling every 18 months but on average human knowledge is doubling every 13 months and in the future according to IBM the growth of the internet will lead to the doubling of knowledge the doubling of all the available all the existing knowledge every few hours, the amount of knowledge in the world doubles. We live in the information age. There's always more information. And there is too much information, actually. What's it all about? Why do we need more information? How did, how did we deal with, with Christian home issues before the Internet, you know, before Google? Well, you know what? We searched the scriptures and we got advice from people who had been there and done that. And, and you go to the information sources these days and you get the world's philosophy on things. And too often people spend... We had a, we had a preacher in for our family camp just... Um, it, just a little over a week ago, who preached one message on on the digital age and on the on people's obsession with their electronic devices. And he said, "This is a real pitfall for some people because they're not conversing and they're not thinking and they're not praying because they are so attached to their social media. They've got to be checking this every few." minutes or seconds to see if somebody has gotten in touch with them to see if somebody has sent them a message and they're so engrossed in all of this that they don't even give thought to 
really important matters. It seems to me that if somebody was knocking on your door every 30 seconds, you'd get pretty tired of that, wouldn't you? But don't we, don't we love it when it happens in our email or our, or our texting or our, you know, and some people are into Twitter and, and some of that other stuff. And, and it's gratifying if somebody wants to keep on communicating with me even momentarily. We spend so much time and yet we don't seem to have time to spend in prayer. We don't seem to have time to spend meditating in the Scriptures and spending time letting God have a chance to speak to us. It's just a terrible snare that the world casts for, I believe, for God's people who desire to do right. It's a diversion for them. You know, unsaved people, Satan already has them for the most part. But if he can make one of the saints ineffective by capturing their imagination, their thought processes, their meditation, if he can make you ineffective in your Christian life, he has won a major victory. And don't imagine he's not going to be trying it. If he can captivate a a godly man and get that man distracted. He may have the whole family. There's just too much information in our world. And this can become a hindrance since since we don't do all we know in the first place. We don't do everything we know in the first place. I heard a man say, uh, years ago he'd, he'd, uh, he was retelling a conversation where one fellow was telling, uh, was telling the preacher, you know, I have a problem. I have a problem with all these things in the Bible that I don't understand. And the preacher said, you know, that's strange because I have the biggest problem with the things I do understand. And, and the fact is, we don't have to know everything. We don't, know, we don't do half of what we know to begin with. So why do we need to know more and more and more and more and more? Some people are just obsessed with gaining more and more and more knowledge. And I'm not against being informed, certainly. We ought to be informed, but a lot of times we are pulled away from truth because we have the wrong kind of goals in our life and we have the wrong kind of expectations. We allow things in our life that we should not allow. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart. You guard your heart. Be careful of how you think and what you think because the issues of life come from your heart. Look quickly in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said something to this effect too that's worthy of our note. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 says, 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, if he hadn't clarified it, one could almost imagine that he was speaking against the law, but he clarified it's not that the law is, is, there's nothing wrong with the law. But he said, the suggestion, the suggestion of sin stirs up my sin nature, basically is what he's saying in Romans chapter 7. And there's nothing good in my flesh. What kind of things do we need to be dwelling on? It's too easy to find lewd and corrupt and defiling and perverted things on the internet these days. And often such things can stir up our base sinful nature. Don't go there. Don't go there. You don't need, you and I, I and I'll, I'll include myself in that number, we don't need help strengthening our sin nature. We don't need help for something to stir up our, the, the, the defilement and the perversion in our heart. We don't need help with that. We're working to destroy our own selves when we do this. Too much information, too much stuff out there. The culture is contrary to Christian homes, and there is too much inconsistency. And this is the last thing, and I'll finish with this. This is also an unavoidable. This is also, excuse me, it's one of it's another one of those avoidable problems. We don't have just because there's such a thing as inconsistency doesn't mean we have to be inconsistent. It's one of those avoidable problems. It's an issue that can be dealt with. And may I say this, and you, you probably know this, inconsistency is such a terrible destroyer in the life of a, in, in a Christian family. Inconsistency, it destroys standards, it destroys faith, it destroys Inconsistency destroys trust. I've often told young people in anticipating their marriage that one of the one of the most important factors you have in your marriage is trust. Don't ever violate trust. You can't even really love somebody that you can't trust. And inconsistent, inconsistency destroys trust. Oh, I can't depend on that person. They say one thing, but they aren't consistent about doing it. Inconsistency is a destroyer of Christian homes. It misleads young people in that home, children in that home. It alienates Husbands and wives, inconsistency. It destroys trust. So many things the devil would like to launch at our home. Parents just need to be more convicted and more dedicated and show more personal discipline. This is an inconsistency is an avoidable issue and an avoidable problem. 
Just be consistent. Just do what, let's just do what we say we believe. And be consistent in it. Examine yourself to see if what you say you believe, you really do believe. Okay, do I, this is what I've always said I believe. Do I really, do I really truly believe that? Or do I just sort of go along with it because, and there's a lot to be said for being in a church like this. And one of the things that can be said is that you subject yourself regularly to a positive peer pressure. There's lots of negative peer pressure out there. But one good thing, and that's what Hebrews 10 is about, provoking one another to love and to good works. That's about positive peer pressure, peer influence, and encouraging each other to do the right thing. The world wants to destroy that and defeat that. And the wrong kind of influences in our life can create inconsistency in us. That's a great destroyer. In Romans chapter 2, the, or chapter 12, the Bible talks about surrender and having the mind transformed. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renew your mind. You need, we need to have our mind renewed. We need to have it freshened in order to be able to consistently pursue that which is good. Look at Ephesians 4, 22, and I'll finish with this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, down to verse 24. Here in Ephesians 4, 22, the Bible says that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's some putting off and there's some putting on. And, and that, that is warranted in the lives of God's people, sometimes on a regular basis. We've allowed something to creep in. That when God, when the Spirit of God brings it to our attention, we need to put that off. We talk about repentance. And, and we should. So critical, absolutely critical in, in reference to salvation. I'm giving up. Lord, I yield. I turn my life over to you. I don't want my sin anymore. And that word, uh, metanoia, metanoeo, means to change one's mind. And, and I, am, I am changing my whole philosophy about who's in charge here. I yield to Christ. And I believe on Him and trust Him. Repentance and faith. But do you know that the child of God, the one who's been saved, even one who's been saved for years, for 20 years or more, still needs to repent sometimes? We need to just get, we need to just get back to center and say, you know what? I'm, I've been accepting some wrong ideas, some wrong philosophies, and they have affected my life, and I need to get back. I need to put off those old things and put on some new things.
I just need to get close to the Lord again. I'm on the verge of moving in a wrong direction and being inconsistent with truth. You see, in our culture, everything, everything is subject to change. Things are always changing. And I still email my friends regularly, but I've been told that emailing is for the old fogies. Emailing is a thing of the past. And, and then I finally, I finally got on board with texting, and for the longest time I didn't have texting. Well, for the longest time I said, believe it or not, well, you'll probably believe this. For a long time I said, oh, I'll never need to learn how to use a computer in my lifetime. And then my next thing was, oh, I don't ever want to have a cell phone. I'll never need a cell phone. That was when we still had phone booths. You say, what's a phone booth? Some of you don't even know what a phone booth is. That's when we still had pay phones. You'd stop at a, at a grocery store or a gas station. There'd be a pay phone in there. And you'd drop in your dime or your quarter and you'd make a call. And so I'm always consistently behind the times, and some of that is, is by design. I said a long time ago, you know, I see a new, and of course this is different for men than for ladies, I'm sure, and I certainly would have never been a fashion, uh, a fashion advisor for women by any means. But whenever I see men with some kind of a new style on, I say, you know, in 10 years, I may, I may be willing to wear something like that. Maybe. When it's not stylish, when it's not the fad anymore. But, you know, you find out that the stuff that you do is, is gone. That's, man, that's bad. That's old news. That's old-fashioned texting. And then Twitter and now TikTok and, and on and on and on it goes. And people just change and everything changes so quickly. That's what society is about. It's about change. And that's what life is about, by the way. Life is about change. And there are some changes that are okay. And there are some changes that are not okay. And they should be thoroughly examined and run through the filter of biblical principle before we say, hey, I guess since the culture is doing that, it must be okay. No, if the culture is doing it, that should be a red flag. It's not okay unless somebody proves it to me otherwise. Because the culture is out to destroy, because the devil's behind the culture. He's the God of this world. He's out to destroy your life and your family. And you should be very, very cautious and be aware of these elements that can so easily divert and deceive. Let's guard our home. Let's guard our life. You know, we only get just one chance at so many things in life. You know, you hear stories about people who failed at business and they failed, they, they failed, like Abraham Lincoln, you know, he ran for office all these different times and got defeated, defeated, defeated until finally he won the, the presidency and he became a U.S. Senator, senator before that and so on and so on. There are some things you get another chance at, but there are a whole lot of things. You know, you, somebody fails at business, somebody fails at, at politics, they can do it again. There are so many things in life you get only one shot at. You'll only get one shot at raising your kids. You only get one shot at being a successful 
husband or wife and being a faithful and godly spouse. At least biblically, you only get one shot at it. Let's just commit to the Lord and let the, let the Spirit of God lead us so that we understand, you know, we live in a contrary culture that's against godliness. And so let's just commit to Him and submit to the Lord and allow Him to lead us in a path that will bring joy and fulfillment and rejoicing. Let's pray.